So our pastor, Tony, is away for this Sunday and two more Sundays. He is in India. The church is considering taking a missions trip there. And so he's over there. And we're all going to pray that he doesn't get sick uh, from drinking the water. Uh, I guess that's all he's been told, uh, is to be careful of that. Instead, Mark, uh, pastor in our presbytery, is going to be giving uh, the, uh, the message this morning. Welcome, Mark. All right, it's a great privilege to be here. I've been a friend of Tony's for many years, but this is my first time preaching here at uh, Hoboken Church. But every time I see Tony, you know, we pastors get together and ask how things are going and what's going on at the various churches. And he always says the same thing. He says, you know, the Hoboken is it's just a happy church, and I'm just happy to be a part of a happy church. So I'm glad to be here today and to kind of get some of that happiness vibe for myself. And so I appreciate you guys having me and appreciate Tony for entrusting me with this duty this morning. For the next uh, three weeks, I'll be with you, and we're going to look at three different psalms from the Old Testament. And my theme is is talking about real-world faith. You know, most of the Psalms were assembled or compiled or written by David, and David was a Renaissance man. He was a warrior and a giant slayer and a king and also a musician and a poet. And if you read his poetry and you read the songs he wrote, you realize that these weren't two separate offices, two segments of his life, but that that the two ran together, and a lot of his songs were about the conflicts and the challenges and the ups and downs that he that he faced. And so we're going to look at a few of those and talk about how our faith isn't something that enables us to escape from real life, but our faith is something we use to engage real life. Today we're looking at Psalm 27. I guess it's going to pop up there. And I'll go ahead and read it. This is a Psalm of David. Uh, some of you might recognize the words in this psalm that were alluded to in one of our previous songs. Psalm 27, hear God's word. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. And of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter on the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent, and he will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I'll sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, I will seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. 
Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. They breathe out violence. I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would open our eyes to your grace and your glory. Show us how your strength can become our strength, how your love can for us can fill our deepest longings, fill our eyes even with a vision of your beauty through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. David starts out, he says, When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes surround me, they will stumble and fall. Now, I've studied a little bit of, of life and the culture of the ancient Near East in David's time, about 900 A.D., and from what I've learned, I don't believe that cannibalism was really a thing in that day. David's taking some poetic license to describe the conflict and the adversaries and the meanness of the people who are surrounding him, who are threatening him, and who are going after him. See, for David to sit down and write these songs was not a denial of the practical realities of his life. It was his way of engaging those practical realities and even those harsh realities and those difficult realities and those ugly realities and finding hope in the midst of them. The hope that the Psalms rise up from David's experience and engage the, the, the struggles that he had each day. And that's one of the remarkable things of the book of Psalms. I would encourage any of you, regardless of what you're going through today, to go to the book of Psalms. And if you read 10 or 20 of them, you'll find one that reflects your feelings, that, that articulates your emotions, whether you're full of joy and gratitude for good things that are happening in your life, whether you're, you're struggling with fear of the future or deep, deep conflict with someone who's close to you, or you have high anxiety or falling into the pit of despair and aren't sure if God's going to be able to reach down and pull you out. There's a psalm that's written that articulates your feelings. Because, see, our faith doesn't insulate us from the broad range of human experience, but our faith goes with us into all of those experiences. So here in Psalm 27, David talks about being in the midst of conflict, being threatened, and what it is that he hopes and prays God is going to do for him in the midst of that. At the end of the psalm, the last two verses, he, said, he, he describes his life of faith and his, his demeanor this way. In the midst of being surrounded by enemies, in the midst of having his life threatened, in the midst of having his, his place in the world taken away from him, he says, verse 13, I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. So there's David. On the one hand, his very life is at risk. On the one hand, he's fighting for survival, but on the other hand, he's at peace. And he believes that everything's going to work out, and he knows that eternally he's secure. So the question is, how do we get from here to there? How do we get from the conflict to that serenity, that life of, 
of peace. I think this psalm shows us the path through that. First of all, David recognizes in the midst of his weakness, even while he's being threatened, God himself gives him the strength that he needs. The Lord, verse 1, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. My strength is not my own. My strength comes from God. All of us, as we go through life, as we go through conflict, as we go through struggles, we got to find strength, and we got to find strength somewhere. And depending on who we are, depending on our gifts, depending on our makeup, depending on how how we're created in our circumstance, we find strength in different places. Some find strength in their physical strength, their ability to lift things up and put them down, their ability to dominate a conversation or their ability to dominate a room. Some find some some people find strength in their mental abilities or their their ability to figure things out and solve problems and fix things. Some people find strength simply in their ability to network, to uh, have relationships and, and to be connected to many people. But all of us need to find a place of strength. In fact, to understand yourself, you need to understand where does my strength come from? What are the things that I do? What are the things that I have that give me strength? David himself had a lot of reasons to claim strength, a lot of things to put trust in, the fact that he was a king, the fact that he was an army, the fact that he had killed Goliath. I think the word got out that he was someone who was not easily intimidated. But at the end of the day, in the midst of all that, he says, the Lord himself is my strength. And David established his strength. You know the story of the life of David. He established his strength over the course of his life as he conquered Jerusalem, as he as he established the armies of Israel, and as they went out and defended themselves against all of their enemies. And But the irony of David, the, the irony of his life is once he really established his strength and consolidated his strength, that's when his strength failed him. You probably know the story in Second Samuel. It tells us that one spring at the time when kings were supposed to go off to war, David had reached a place in his rule where he didn't have to go off to war anymore. He could stay home. And he could enjoy the spring and let his men go off and fight and just receive their reports from the battlefront. And so he went for a walk on the roof, and there he spied the wife of one of his officers, he invited her over to dinner. Dinner led to other things. And next thing you know, he was having an affair with one of his men's wives while his men were out doing the battle for him. So David's strength became his liability. David's strength almost destroyed him because he, he started, he began to rest on his strength. If you know the story, he was confronted by that. He was exposed by the prophet Nathan and he found a new strength, a new strength in God's grace and God's forgiveness. And that's a parable for all of us, because if and to the extent that we find strength in ourselves, if and to the extent that we find strength in other people or in other alliances, or we put our trust in other things, that strength will always fa- fail us. In fact, the very thing that we think is our strength can become our greatest vulnerability. Those relationships that we think are, are our strength can betray us. Those abilities that we think are our strength can be taken away from us. And then before we know it, the very strengths that we rested in 
become the weaknesses that expose us. That's what happened to David. Where was David at his most strong? Where was David at his most impressive? I think it was when he was a teenage boy who showed up to check on his brothers, remember? And there was this giant who was threatening and challenging the armies of Israel. And David, the punk kid who wasn't even a trained warrior, said, why are you guys just standing here and letting him say those things about our God? Someone has to step up. And they said, shut up, go home, right? And then David said, if you guys won't do it, I will. And so David steps out in front of Goliath. Remember the story? And Goliath is like, what am I, a dog that you send a little kid with a stick to challenge me? And David's response was this. You come against me with a sword and a spear and the javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. He wasn't a trained warrior. He wasn't a gladiator. He had no idea how to handle a sword or a shield. But he had the strength of the Lord, and that's what enabled him to, to face the giants. As we go through lives, there's going to be things that threaten you. Maybe even today there's things that threaten you, things that make you wonder about your own personal viability, make you wonder if you're going to survive. And there's a temptation to look within for the strength to face those things or perhaps to make alliances with others who will enable us to endure those things or enable us to overcome those challenges. But what the Bible says is we need to find our strength in God himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul puts it this way. When I am weak, that's when I'm actually strong. Because when I'm weak in and of myself, when my alliances and my personal resources and my personal strength has been sapped, that's when I stop looking around and I look up. That's when I discover a strength beyond myself, a strength that's greater than myself. That's when I discover the strength of God. And that's the paradox of the gospel life, the paradox of, of biblical spirituality. When we are weak, then we are strong. No one was ever more powerful than our Lord Jesus Christ when he walked on this earth, when he was able to cure lepers with a touch, when he was able to raise the dead with his words when he was able to feed the 5,000 with simply a prayer. And yet, his greatest power was released, his greatest work was accomplished when he became weak and suffered and died for us. And that was through his weakness that we were redeemed and his greatest work was accomplished. And for us as well, it's when we face our weakness, even when we lean into our weakness and when we let go of of our temptation to find strength in other places and depend on God that we experience true strength. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. I don't need to fear anything. Can you say that? That's the life of faith, even when you feel threatened beyond yourself. But what's the point of power? What's the point of strength? Well, if you watch movies, if you read literature, you know that there's, there's a purpose to strength. There's a purpose to finding power. And the purpose of strength, the purpose of power, is always in order to secure the beauty. Right? It's not just for its own sake, not just for survival. There's something more than survival, and that is to see the beauty. And so Paul, David faces the threat of loss. He faces 
all the things that, that would devour his flesh. And he says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, this is verse 4, this is what I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What is the goal of strength? What is the purpose of strength? What is the benefit of strength at the end of the day? It's to secure the beauty that our hearts long for. Helen of Troy, the most beautiful woman in, in all of legend, what was, what, what did she do? She had the face that launched a thousand ships. She provoked a whole war just to recover her, to recover her, her beauty. And there's a universal longing in all of our hearts, a universal longing that comes from God, a longing for beauty, a longing for glory, a longing to see and to know and to be in the presence of true, true beauty. We see that in, the in you know, beauty is something that's in the eye of the beholder. Some of us find beauty in music of various sorts or in the visual arts, in the performing arts, the beauty of, of dance, the we find beauty in nature, in a sunset, or in a mountain range, or in a meadow with wildflowers. Or we find beauty in the beautiful people of this world, and, and people who reflect God's image in their own person. But God has placed this longing for beauty in all of us. God has placed in all of us a longing to be in his presence, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple, the beauty of nature, the beauty of creation, the beauty of beautiful human beings is all a reflection, all derivative of the beauty of God, which is ultimately what's going to, what, what each of our hearts longs for. You know, I, I think the, the saying goes that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And all of us have different things that we see beauty in. And one of the things about beauty is, is beauty is an end in itself. It's not a means to a greater end, but beauty is a goal in and of itself. Unlike power, which is something we use to get other things, beauty is the goal. I've, I've got a friend who is a car guy. And he, his hobby is to buy and sell these old cars, to restore these cars, to go searching for replacement parts or repair parts to to fix fix these cars up and then then to get them running and drive them and the place they drive these cars to are car shows where everybody with all their old cars they line them up and then the different car guys go around and, and look at the different cars and say that's really nice you've done done a nice job there and i've ridden in these cars with him and the interesting thing is these cars aren't very useful you would, really wouldn't want to drive from Jersey City to Long Island in one of these cars. You almost certainly would not make it. Uh, but they do attract a lot of attention, and people like to look at them, and, you know, the old guys like to look at these cars and kind of reminisce about the days when, when they got one of these that was brand new or, or whatever the case might be. So, so the, these cars are not utilitarian. They're not useful, but they're just objects of beauty to people who, who happen to be car guys, not to the general public. They're just kind of objects of scorn to most people, I think. But but that that's kind of an illustration of the fact that beauty is something that is an end in itself. It's not for the purpose of anything beyond itself. Beauty is a product of a kind of harmony. 
in every aspect, whether it's it's the harmony of nature, unspoiled, pristine wilderness that some of us enjoy, whether it's the harmony of notes in music, the harmony of lines and colors in visual art, the harmony of a performance in a dance. There's a harmony that creates this beauty, this, this unity and diversity that comes together in a way to, to create a, a special beauty. It strikes me... I go to a lot of weddings, you know, as a, as a minister, we, we go to more than our share of weddings and we're involved in more than our share of, of marriage ceremonies. And one of the things that strikes me about it is for every bride, there'll never be a more beautiful day for her than the day of her wedding. You know, the church is always looking more, more extravagantly decorated on a wedding day than it is on any other day. And the meal, that is thrown, the reception that is thrown, whether it's a, a, at a fancy reception hall or whether it's a do-it-yourself in a rented hall, is always the most beautiful meal that, that, that those, those mother of the bride and that bride will ever participate in. And the dress that she wears is always the most beautiful and ornate dress that she will ever wear. Why is that? Why do we put all that effort into a wedding ceremony to create that beauty in that ceremony? Because in that ceremony, we're celebrating the two becoming one. We're celebrating the union of two lives, the union of two hearts, the union of two futures. And, and somehow in that, in the wedding ceremony, we're trying to give a vision of the harmony and the beauty that will be created by that. See, beauty is created when we have this unity connected with this diversity in a harmonic way. When David says, one thing I ask, this is what I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David didn't know it, but what he was looking for, what he was looking ahead to, what he was hoping for was the beauty of God consists in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God in Trinity, living in perfect unity, in perfect harmony, in perfect love, in perfect creativity, from all eternity past into all eternity future. That's the beauty he anticipated. That's the beauty that he longed for. That's the beauty that he looked ahead to. And now here's the thing. David's highest goal, David's greatest vision was that maybe somehow, some way, he might see that. Somehow, some way, he might be in the presence of the beauty of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, Jesus came to earth in a way that David couldn't have imagined. And Jesus changed our relationship with God in in a way that David couldn't have anticipated. And through union with him and through connection with him, we don't just gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We become invited into the beauty of the Lord, invited into a relationship with him. So we're not just observers of that beauty, but we're actually participants in that beauty through union with Christ, being able to call God our Father being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, being in the presence of God, being in relationship with God, the beauty of God becomes part of our experience, part of 
our lives. A remarkable verse, John 17, 21. You might want to look it up later. John 17, if you're familiar with it, Jesus is praying to his Father, and in later later half, he's praying for us, those who will believe in him through the message of the apostles. He's praying for you and me. And he says, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they, may we be in them. Because to be in Christ, to be united with Christ, is to receive the love from the Father, even as Jesus did. To be united with Christ is to be indwelt by the Spirit, even as Jesus was, and to be not just an observer of the beauty of the Lord, but actually to be a participant, to be united to the beauty of the Lord. It's like going to a concert, not just sitting back there and watching the skilled musicians play, but being invited up on the stage and realizing you're one of them and you're able to play with them because of a supernatural gift that's been given you. That's what Jesus came to do for you and for me. To be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, to be robed in the splendor of his grace is to be invited into the beauty of the Lord, to be invited into the dance of the Trinity and to be able to to enjoy the presence of God there. All the other beauties that we see around us, the beauties of music, the beauties of artwork, the beauty of of all of our create of this creation, the beauty of the beautiful people all around us are all derivative and reflective of this. What it means to be a Christian, what it means to be united with Christ is to be invited into the beauty of God and to to bask in that presence. One day, all these other beauties inevitably fade. The beauty of God is eternal for all of those who are connected to him by love. So God gives us the strength that we need. He gives us, he offers us an invitation to be a partaker of the beauty that we long for. And finally, he promises us a love that will make us whole. Verse 10, he says this. He says, even if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. He, he visualizes basically the, the, the worst of human catastrophes, abandonment by your mother and father. And he says, even if that happened to me, I would be okay. I'd certainly be okay because God's acceptance is greater. God's acceptance is more defining. God's acceptance is more important even than that. God's acceptance can heal that. And here's the thing. The purpose of power, the goal of beauty, ultimately is to experience a lasting love, to secure a love that will make us whole. And the problem often for powerful people, they worry that if... I lose my power, will I still be loved? Or does anybody really love me, or are they just afraid of me, in other words? The problem for beautiful people is, if I lose my looks, will I still be loved? Or in other words, does anyone really love me, or do they just love my, my beauty whatever, in whatever form I am able to share that? The 
love of a mother, the love of a father, what that's supposed to be, what that's designed to be for you and me, is that's the one place where we're loved not because of what we can do. That's the one place where we're loved not because of what we look like, but that's the one place that we're loved just because we are. And that's what your heart needs, and that's what my soul needs. God's love for you and me is not a love that's given to us because we're strong, but if we experience God's love, that makes us strong in the way that really matters. It's not given to us because we're beautiful, but what the the gospel tells us is we become beautiful because we're loved by God. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the promise. The most catastrophic thing that David can visualize, he says in verse 9, is do not forsake me, O God. His, his greatest concern is that he not be forsaken. Now you know the story of the gospel. It's about the one who from all eternity in the beginning was with God and was God. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And he came to earth. And then as time went on towards the end of his life, he was arrested. He was condemned by men, even though he was the perfect and beloved Son of God. He was condemned by men. He was hung on a cross. And then on the cross, the tables turned. On the cross, the sky grew dark. On the cross, he called out to his eternal Father, with whom he had been in eternal, perfect communion. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only one who ever lived who had earned and deserved and achieved and merited God's favor and God's blessing was forsaken by God on that cross. Why was that? That was so that people like me and people like you who deserve to be cast out could be brought in. He took on our sin, our failure, and gave us the splendor of his robes of righteousness. Jesus had all beauty in and of himself. In fact, Jesus is the source and the origin of all beauty. He's the creator of the world and all of the created beauty that we see around him. It either is made directly by him or it reflects It reflects him. And yet he came to earth and he became plain. Isaiah 53 says Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in him that we should desire him. In fact, he became someone who people wanted to look away from. People wanted to avert their eyes from because he was so so disfigured in his suffering. He was despised and rejected. Why was that? He, the beautiful one, became plain so that you could be clothed in the robes of his righteousness, so that you could find your ultimate and eternal beauty in him. Jesus describes the gospel this way in in Ephesians 5, 27. He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, so to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Ultimately, the beauty of the most beautiful wedding is just a sign and a symbol of the reality that Jesus, the perfect groom, 
makes us perfect and embraces us and invites us into eternal relationship with him. Jesus, from all eternity, had all power and glory, but he humbled himself. He voluntarily made himself weak. We don't volunteer for weakness. Weakness is forced upon us at various times in our life and in various places in our life. Jesus surrendered himself to his enemies. He allowed his enemies to have their way with him. Why? Through his weakness, he demonstrated his love. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10 goes on to say that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus weakened himself. Jesus surrendered himself to his enemies, allowed his enemies to destroy him so that through his weakness, even through his death, we might know true strength and true life. Our new beauty, eternal beauty, comes through a restoration of our connection with God, our harmony with God, to be united with Christ and to be united with God as our Father, to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to be become a participant in the dance of, of God, the dance of the Trinity. And that, that's the hope that he gives us. See, life in the real world is hard. It's hard for all of us in different ways, in different places, from time to time. If it's not hard for you today, don't worry. It will be tomorrow. But that hardness, the ugliness, the loss, and the weakness can be God's gift to us if it points us to a strength that is outside of ourselves, if it points us to a beauty that only he can give us, if it points us to the only love that will ultimately satisfy our souls. The gospel is simply this. Jesus, who had all strength in him, became weak, that through his weakness we might know true strength. He had all beauty in him, but he became ugly, that through his body being maimed, we might be made whole and might be made beautiful. He was forsaken that we might know eternal acceptance if we'll simply trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray now that you would meet us in our weakness that we might find strength in you. Meet us in our shame, that we might find a beauty in you. Meet us even in our loneliness, our alienation now, that we might discover that your love is sufficient for us. Pray that you would do this in Jesus' name, the name of your beautiful, all-powerful, beloved Savior, we pray. Amen.